A lot of my work involves that middle space that's the space where it's an in-between moment to celebrate what might come up when we don't script it. That's where wonder and awe can play a part because when there's riding the waves of what might be our thoughts leading to some kind of inspiration that's unexpected. Wellness is a topic that has always fascinated me, largely because of its all-encompassing relevance. While certainly important, our own personal mental health and physical well-being are only a small part of it. Wellness plays a huge part in helping to build a thriving and sustainable community. All of us have a big role to play in supporting both personal and collective well-being, which is why researchers, engineers, scientists, artists, administrators, and so many others have made wellness the focus of their work. And with breakthroughs and new technological advancements happening every day, there are an increasing number of ways in which we can all pursue wellness in our lives and in our world. Which leads me to Caitlin Krauss, a globally recognized experience designer, learning expert, author, and professor at Stanford University. She is also the founder of the consultancy MindWise and co-founder of the Center of Wise Leadership, as well as a virtual reality, XR, and AI specialist focusing on building products and experiences that promote humanity, innovation, and emotional intelligence. But what resonated with me the most when I met Caitlin is her ability as a storyteller to dive into different models and shapes and translate them in ways that are useful to other people, mixing science and art along the way. She is a big believer in trusting her own instincts and has honed her ability to truly listen and observe others, knowing things are working when people are in a state of flow. In a world where some level of scrutiny and skepticism can be healthy when evaluating what can truly work for each of us as individuals, particularly as it relates to our own personal well-being, Caitlin is a breath of fresh air. Welcome to Living Untitled. actually going to ask if I could have a moment because I've been going from, you know, meeting to meeting and sometimes you get in a podcast and it gets very cerebral and kind of neck up. So I was going to ask if maybe you or I, if we just wanted to like breathe for a moment and oh, feel I our feet that. please kind of like settle in. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And I'm just setting a an intention to be present, to be in the moment here with Justin, and just to be uh, grateful for the things that we can't predict that come up in a stream of conversation. Feeling that energy in my feet and feeling my whole body filled with air like a balloon, able to stretch, and also feeling a sense of ease and playfulness. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And Caitlin, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time coming, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. This is so mm-hmm. fun. I'm so glad that you're here with us. And thank you for helping us just get a little centered before we dive into this, too. It's such an amazing feeling. And I don't think that... A lot of us, myself certainly included, I don't know if we spend enough time just doing that, 
working on presence. And I know that we're going to talk a lot about presence here today. So I'm really excited to dive into this with you. One of the first things that I really like to start with, since community is such an important topic for us here at Living Untitled, is just to set the stage by asking a question of how do we remind people that community itself is worth the investment? How do you sort of approach that in your work? In my own work and in in my life, I've found different communities to be a source of wholeness and a source of support and also a place where I can show up and leave feeling even more nourished and nurtured. And um, humans right now, there's so much unpredictability in the world. There's a lot of instability and change. And we've learned, I think, to be very adaptive. Mm -hmm. And also maybe we've learned in that resilience, flexing to maybe try to predict the next obstacle or be very challenge-minded. So I remind people about communities as a wellspring, as a place where they can come, whether they're curious to have new ideas and share, um, whether they just feel like showing up because humans are social animals. Um, I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, for me, a community is not about being homogenous as much as being diverse and coming and being willing to be seen. Mm. And so uh, a lot of my roles involve fostering those safe spaces where people can show up and they can be very spontaneous. You know, I tell people there's open door, they can stay as long as they want to stay. You know, and we can talk about this more, but I I think because I do a lot of work with uh, digital communities, Mm -hmm. it can be any form and function from being in an embodiment world in VR, in virtual reality, or being in a present place in physicality. And it's all very real if our emotions are invested. So so for me, community is that that place, that source um, that's really natural. And sometimes people need a little nudge or an invitation or something that, um, you know, I, I tell them, especially for people who come and they might uh, be more focused on themselves and feeling self-conscious. Uh, the way to be interesting is to be interested. So yes. often I remind people that, you know, the other person is just as nervous sometimes about this interaction. <laughs> so true. So you know, how true. Can we, yeah. How can we, how can we get to know the other, other humans in our community and, and kind of um, maybe leave some of that uh, self-consciousness at the door? Very, very simply, and maybe not even so much on your work, focused on your work, but very simply, when you think about building community in your life, what do you do? How do you build community? Gosh, such a big question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I think first off, um, when I'm engaging, let's say I wouldn't I would never say my primary title is community builder. It ends Mm -hmm. up happening quite naturally. And sometimes uh, let's imagine you and I are, are talking about something or facing something. I'm often standing either shoulder to shoulder or back to back with somebody yes. uh, philosophically. Yes. So we might be looking at something and then I'll say, hey, Justin, did you see that? Like, what do you think of that? Whether it's a sunset or whether it's something that we're engaging with, a piece of art. You know, it's it's um, for me, the community happens through shared experience. Yes. So I guess that's the first thing. And, and if we deconstruct it, everything that we care about has some kind of emotional package surrounding it. So how do we have 
experiences that are richly encoded in emotions, yes. you know, forget about positive, negative, you know, every emotion is part of the, the spectrum of, of wholeness. Um, you know, and sometimes we'll be back to back. Maybe you're in another physical part of the world, or maybe mm. we don't have the same types of access to each other. So I think I think these avenues for um, sharing intimacy, that's part of my calling as a community builder to yeah. to be invitational about it and also uh, let it be a conduit where somebody else gets to engage and say, um, say what they care about and and how they want to have uh an emotional meaningful exchange mm, i love that i love that so much okay now we'll get to the technical now we'll get to the fun because you're just doing such amazing yeah. fascinating work exploring how technology is playing a very important role and how we think about community building specifically how we're able to connect with one another and mm -hmm. You know, a little bit, and I'll just be really candid with you, like admittedly, a, a topic I tend to stray away from is the metaverse, which I know is a space that you spend yeah. a lot of time. And, you know, I find the productivity sort of focused applications of the metaverse, like it makes sense to me. I get it. I get how the metaverse is helping us to work better, to collaborate better, to learn better. There's some really exciting stuff there. But the emotionally focused applications... I just often find, at least from what I read and what I've seen and what I'm aware of in the world, I, I I fear and sort of feel this feeling that like it's a lot of the work's misguided, right? Like in the same way that we think about social media and how that's mm -hmm. really fallen off the rails in society as a whole in a lot of ways and its effects on people. And so that's where I get this weird, creepy feeling in my stomach when it comes to things like the metaverse. But when you talk about experience design for community using these types of technologies, you address a lot of these concerns head on, focusing on how we're actually designing experiences in a way that can cultivate presence. You know, we used that word earlier and integrating a sense, the sensory elements. And you use yeah. words like sensory elements that can help inspire awe and wonder. And those are very human, wonderful things. And so... I guess I kind of wanted to ask you, like, how do you convince a skeptic like me <laughs> of the benefits of the the sort of digital experience and ultimately connect the dots to understand how we can use these technologies to help us develop meaningful connections? Because you see a way that there is some, some strong potential there in terms of Definitely. delivering those types of outcomes. I, I do. And uh, rather than presume to be an oracle of Delphi or oracle of the metaverse, I think with the with the layers as I as I talk about this type of technology, I, I want to kind of back up a little bit yeah. to talk about the layer. You know, as we talk about community, or in your question, you brought up society. Uh, to frame my perspective, um, I'm a child of diplomats. My parents mm -hmm. were in the foreign service, so. I personally had to adapt a lot growing up. So yeah. I, I lived in a way where I was always flexing curiosity over fear. Mm. Uh, I was in different cultures and places where the languages weren't always English. And I had an invitation from a very young age. When I was four, we moved overseas. I was going to different uh, local schools. And usually it would be a situation where I was so excited about learning and sharing and being in communities. And I knew that I wasn't exactly like other people. And I knew that um, for me, something that involved art 
-hmm. something that involves storytelling. These were how people shared the culture, you know, and we talk a lot, even, you know, in your podcast, you talk a lot about the blend of art and science, you know, and how, how myths travel and carry these truths. And I started to see a lot of parallels between um, values and, and opportunities for human kindness and belonging, even in spaces where it seemed like, um, you know, that would be a challenge. Mm. And for me, it was both the the gravity and the levity. I was always really interested in this idea of, okay, you know, we take, I take things like people's stories and their backgrounds very seriously. Yeah. And then I was able to see some of the benefits of engaging in play. And as I grew up, I, I really wanted to, uh, I actually really wanted to be an astronaut, maybe like a lot of people. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> yeah, for real. And I and I studied and I, I really wanted to um, go to space. And um, I had a scholarship to study even in university. I was wow. on that track. And then my eyesight wasn't good enough. And at the time that was, you know, that was definitely, I had a scholarship to be on that track. And I had to sort of re- recalibrate. Um, but I was also someone who was really into the arts. And so mm. I saw this merge of science and art and, you know, and also experimentation. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather worked for NASA. He was doing projects where um, his job was to work on the spacesuits and make sure that the spacesuits in the seam, they didn't have any uh, space to be penetrable to the outer atmosphere. So ah. he was doing things with ultrasonics. Yeah. And I was in class, you know, classrooms, four walls, but I felt like the most animated times for me learning were in the lab or, you know, in the basement or somewhere where you got to tinker a lot and move around and play and, and experiment and predict things and see where the outcomes were. Um, and at the same time, I was also writing poetry and some of the poetry would be about um, losing myself, losing my sense mm. of, of uh, yeah, an attachment to my identity as a perspective, but not one way. You know, what would happen? Sometimes I'd, I'd just go into a dream state where I would be in what I now call wonder and awe, but I mm. wasn't so self-aware to say that. And I felt like I was just channeling something that felt so pure and that's how I got into writing and storytelling, just through imagination. So so after school, I went into programming and uh, felt like it wasn't enough to be in a job where I was working in a cubicle, uh, mm-hmm. doing consulting work. I thought, oh, no, this has to be um, more creative. So I ended up uh, blending a lot of, you know, fast forward, the, the short stories, I ended up blending a lot of the poetry studies and the yeah. storytelling um, with ways to engage in learning and collaboration and community. And when I discovered the layers of immersive technology that let you embody an avatar or go into a world where you can participate together in how to code it, um, now we've actually made spaces that I've designed that take you to the moon and you're looking down on planet Earth Mm. and you have swirls of colors around you and fantastical imagery and music and people have said that their bodies feel transported Mm. um and if if they can do that safely if i can guide people to have that kind kind of an experience for you know we're not talking all day we're not talking just in disappearing into the metaverse (laughs) you know your your question i love it because it's it was identifying the the sci-fi and also maybe 
maybe the you know, I was picturing what maybe like a David Lynch movie where there's a <laughs> like a, a sort of low tone in the background and people are totally. scared. I, and I mean, that fear is real. It's yes. anytime we put something over our face or we're going into somewhere where all of our senses have a layer over them. And yeah. I mean, that's 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 a huge amount of trust. Yeah. And it's also, you know, an opportunity if it's not done with care and with wisdom and with experience, it's an mm-hmm. opportunity then for somebody um, to really have their limbic system hijacked. And yes. um, so we could we could go into a whole design session, but I, I actually really love being that trusted person who gets to play a role in somebody mm-hmm. um, having this wonderful experience that can bring about greater freedom whether it's a freedom from pain or some type of oppression, or even someone who just wants a break in their day because there's a lot of noise. And yeah, um, yeah. so I'll, I'll pause there. That was some of the background that I think leads yeah. into why I feel as if, you know, there are sci-fi experiences of, of something scary that are potentials, but there's also huge potential for good and healing and something really wonderful to come about through work in virtual reality, augmented reality, all kinds of uh, what would be extended reality. You brought up identity there and your own sort of relationship with your own personal identity, but then also people and identity in these types of environments. And identity is a really important topic for me. It kind of always has been. I think a lot about how we show up in a room, how we want to be perceived, what we bring with us below the surface that others don't immediately see that plays like a really important role in how we make decisions, how we respond to things. Even in what you were just talking about here, you were talking about like how we show up in this metaverse. And in some of your other work, you talk specifically about the choice of how to be rather than simply what to be. And you call this a soulful choice. And some of your work is focused on helping others develop a stronger sense of awareness of how to show up as a soulful self, as your soulful self within these types of spaces. And I think you're talking a little bit about that when you talk about these sort of transformative worlds that you can take yourself into here. With this type of investigatory work that you're doing in that space, do you see that this work can also benefit us in the physical space as well, encouraging us to be more aware of how we show up physically in the world around us? I believe in interstitial, that there's something happening and it's it's not either or. It's mm. a yes and proposition for how... Maybe maybe it has to do with plasticity because I, I'm I'm really studying this. Mm. So I, I teach digital wellness at Stanford. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm studying actively what's happening now with research because there hasn't really been a lot of longitudinal research or any mm. research, you know, showing someone's experience over time. Um and with wonder and awe and identity and flow states, um, let's say, you know, it fascinates me uh, that that we have a lot of prediction states, like yes. trait gratitude can predict state happiness. And usually you might have a faster heartbeat, or maybe you're excited when you're going into a virtual reality environment. And mm-hmm. so the experience is gonna be exciting. You predict it to be exciting. You live, you live into that prediction. Um, so so with identity and, and goals, 
you mentioned that you're motivated sometimes to to make a connection mm -hmm. or to investigate parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how maybe environments where, let's say, a sound could be a color or you could have an identity association that would be a different language than words, uh, how that could play out mm -hmm. with you exploring where where certain emotions are or mm. or how your physical body is uh the almost like the the container for mm -hmm. you to have an experience mm -hmm. in the physical world and people do tend to report that they come out of an experience in vr with me and say that they feel more centered or say that they feel more connected yeah um if we're if we're doing something and it involves some kind of breathing exercise, then they they come out and they say, okay, you know, now I'm I'm just a little more aware. My my senses are tuned. And that's that's part of my goal that people don't feel it's it's always an invitation over prescription with me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want anyone to come in feeling like there's one right way to do yeah. anything or that I'm I'm teaching something that's a you know step by step. And when they when they're exiting, if they if they're able to notice something like like leaves on trees in a different way, or take time for themselves to to really, um, I think that's part of the issue that that we have very fixed attachment to time and expectation, and now it's kind of it's also maybe interfered with our relationship with ourselves and our identity. It can become a little performative, maybe if we feel we have to be recording or posting or taking a picture when we're happy um and so a lot of a lot of my work involves that that middle space that's the space where um it's an in between moment to to celebrate what might come up when we don't script it yeah and that's that's where wonder and awe can play a part because yeah. the the awe state the flow state happens to usually come about when we're not prescribing it and uh when there's when there's a almost a riding riding the waves of what might be our thoughts leading yeah. to some kind of inspiration that's unexpected. Yeah. Well, maybe we can play with it for a minute. And if we get off the rails, oh well. But as you were, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> as you were kind of explaining yeah. this to me, what I had in my yeah. head, like the the example that you mentioned that I got really excited about was when you talked about a sound appearing as a color like that's something that technology affords us the opportunity to really like actually experience right because we can't you know <laughs> i can't speak yeah. right now and see color i don't have that ability <laughs> but <laughs> what immediately kind of went off in my head in that moment is wow like you could design this really cool experience around that that helps people to understand like how their own intonation and tonality is received by others you're kind of back to the point about like your soulful self. You're kind of saying in your work here that it's like this technology, these XR experiences that you're designing, they do really have the potential to help us tap more into our inner self in a way or to examine our inner self in a way that's really unique, that's really quite fascinating. And to me, that's almost like contradictory to how we often think about technology in the world is this cold, hard, sterile thing. I even look at my wrist and like the smartwatch on my wrist. I don't think yeah. about this as like it helping me to be a more connected human to my inner self necessarily by any means. But what you're describing, there is 
that possibility. You are opening that door when you're designing an experience in that way. Definitely. And uh, the course that I teach is Digital Wellbeing. The subtitle is Developing Healthy Relationships with Technology. And it's it's all about relationship building and and how to see that duality of it's it's the relationship I have with you mm-hmm. mediated by tech, mm-hmm. which ideally would make it more easeful. So this is my view of the future too with AI. Mm. We we want to ease the friction and have more meaningful relationships. We get to imbue the, the meaning as mm-hmm. humans. We can provide that meaning. Um, and then the the double meaning is also what we feel about technology. You know, what's your relationship with the tech and how are you using it? And is it a cold relationship or is it something that that is more supple? And there are people who um, uh, who actually have a connection with synesthesia and they can do that in the in the yeah. physical world. Yeah. And in the virtual world, if you can play around with that and, and kind of change up expectation, a lot of what I think is the opportunity is not to replicate um, our physical reality in a digital world. It's it's to really change things and increase creativity, increase imaginative capacity, mm. and maybe upend our expectation because our, our brain is a predictive kind of machine. And, and every time, or, or even a creature in itself, and every yeah. time you change the predictive model and you offer something like, oh, that's that's different, that's a surprise, then that's how we um, we tend to learn. And, and if you give a place, a space with meaning, then mm. humans tend to remember it. And so a lot of what's underneath these uh, these spatial environments is changing things into three dimensions because we, we happen to live in a time period that could be the most awkward time to be human mm. when we're hunching over phones and feeling anxiety if we don't know where our phone is. And, you know, it's it's a multi-purpose device that's also giving us alerts all the time and this is not great for our minds and then we go into 2d worlds where we're supposed to remember things that are just plastered in a 2d way when we exist as 3d creatures that um you know we we remember better when things have a story attached to it and um an object that stands for the story so I'm, i'm really interested in how to build you know, back to back to metaverse as you introduce the buzzword. It's like it's like I say, okay, it's it's spatialized, you know, and there's there's this opportunity for a metaverse to have uh, the social aspect and the mm-hmm. and the shared experiences. But I say there there are other S's involved where it's also highly sensory. You know, mm-hmm. using our five senses and more. It's somatic. We get to feel our body and feel um, where we're feeling certain inputs as as we have haptics and biofeedback. Uh, there are stories in a metaverse that we can share in a different way with objects like I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And then and then the last S is it does get to be soulful because you find yourself sometimes embodying things that are are different creatures or you're you're in a new environment and you suddenly have this this intimate feeling that many people report that is a a who am I kind of feeling mm. and a and a deep level of wonder that can be like an overview effect where you start to feel compassion in a new way and um, there are empathy building possibilities and then and then you start to care more about a deeper story of of wholeness beyond yes. me as an individual. 
actually last week when we had a conversation, you mentioned this idea, um, you you being a firm believer in not worshiping what we don't understand. And I really liked that phrase when you used that, which kind of led me to come to this question here about just in the work that you're doing, how are you encouraging people on all sides to think differently or more carefully about wellness? And particularly as we think about wellness and our association with technology as a tool to both cultivate and support wellness. I really like to gravitate and then go beyond buzzwords yeah. because they they clearly have some kind of attraction for a lot of people and and I like to investigate well how do we I guess what what is most useful for us at this place in time and and sometimes when when we're looking at a concept like wellness mm. um and, and well-being, actually, a practice that can be really interdisciplinary. You know, I've, I've recently been looking at laughter practices and mm. improv. And, you know, at Stanford, there's so many invitations. You can get um, really interdisciplinary and have part of this course be um, playing around with these types of theater practices and, mm. and really physical practices and then also have... Uh, interactions with the AI lab and talk about AI research and what we're learning more right now about mm. AI and AGI. Um, and I think I think ultimately what I really aim to do in a practice of well-being is to um, to use research and to have it re be research driven and also to frame that a lot of the constructs are um, when they when they really work well for people, they tend to be conditional. So mm. they tend to meet people where they're at. Yeah. So wellness and well-being wouldn't be a frame where each of us has to do a certain practice at a certain time of day. Um, but it's paying attention to how your body feels and how... Well, it, I've also been reading a lot into uh, research in neurotransmitters and addiction research, mm. you know, so so what actually makes us happy and is the happiness the goal? And so a lot of mm. a lot of the reframing lately has been investigating um, what we used to pursue as as maybe a happiness goal. And I, I like to I like to ask questions, lots of deep questions about, well, what's what's satisfying and and what is it about? life where, especially in business, you know, a business will say, uh, well, we need to work on KPIs and we need to have things be measurable yeah. and outcomes. And sometimes the outcomes that are beneficial in past decades used to be things like performance. And it still is. Um, but as we enter a phase where AI can help us in some of these automated processes that make our performance naturally higher in terms of output, what is our quality measure? especially when we've maybe been conditioned to think that a certain number of hours per work week earns us a certain amount of relaxation. You know, some people will come to me saying that their work has implemented um, a mental health day or a wellness day, and they're at home and they don't know what to do with themselves because yes. they just don't have any resources. <laughs> and they're saying to me, well, what should I do? Should I start a meditation practice? How do I meditate? I'm a really bad meditator. You know, and then I say, I am too. You know, and then, then we read Dan Harris, 10% happier. Um, and, and he's great because he has a sense of humor about it. Um, but I, I do think these are these are real issues. And a lot of places are, are maybe checking the box saying, oh, you know, our corporation believes in wellness. Um, what is that? 
what does that mean? If you stand behind it, what I like to ask is, well, where does this come into practice? And, you know, do you have resources so that people feel like their needs are met? Their basic needs, like securing your safety belt first, you know, basic needs yeah. um, would be uh, sometimes breathing practices. That's, yeah. that's something really great for people who have stress, anxiety, and they might be uh, getting on this cycle where they just keep ruminating or catastrophizing. And I found, um, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of basic breathing training, mm. um, athletic related breathing training, and then also uh, training, just, just learning about breath work and how the breath can affect the body. Yeah. So I could go on and on, but I guess, I guess to hone in on this, <laughs> this question, this big question about wellness and the future, future of life, <laughs> we, we really, you know, I, I want everybody, everybody should feel as if they have a place there. And I guess that's mm. that's the point. And that's why I love to add humor. Because if if we make this a Western world, performative, cookie cutter, then it's just, you know, we see in the media um, a lot of places that might make fun of, say, a meditation program or something. And, and people will say, well, that's not for me. And I love to go into companies, you know, the big companies, small companies, you know, I work with the state department, I work with LinkedIn, I work with different places. And I love to come in and say, Hey, you know, everyone's invited. And if you yes. have maybe a certain preconception about, uh, what something like applied mindfulness or wellness is, that's totally valid. And, um, you're also invited to, to maybe, uh, reconsider and find some, some new angles that might be useful to your life. Yes. Yes, I love it. I love it. Where yeah. we talked about, you know, your childhood and I and I hear it come out a lot in your perspective, you know, growing up with parents in the foreign service and you know, that experience what you learned from that. But where did your love of humor come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I I think I don't, uh, this is really funny. I, um, so my parents are both very funny people. Um, and I have, uh, family humor has always been something where, you know, we never had a kid's table. We always had all the different generations together, you know, sharing stories. Um, and I think, I think that humor is how, how, you know, you're not a robot. And so mm. a lot of my, <laughs> A lot of my, I've even taught a course called Humans Beyond the Robots. The best litmus test. Sorry, Terry, yeah. but like that one's so much better. <laughs> I know. And beyond the basic jokes, it's like, can we get the twinkle in the eye? Do we understand yes. illusion? Do we understand um, fallibility and the beauty of imperfection? And this is why I think, um, you know, no matter what, if I have an AI partner that's always listening, they might not be challenging me in the same way. Like a great mm. dance partner is actually giving you some friction back. They're not spaghetti armed. Yes. And so I think that senses of humor have to be about that, that play, because mm. I can't be funny if I'm not actually engaging with you. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's a humanity there that I've always really, really appreciated. Um, and it, it also lightens the, the load like if you're if mm -hmm. you're someone who might be um putting a lot of pressure on yourself if you can get yourself to laugh even yes. in circumstances that are challenging you know i i moved overseas by myself uh to teach at an international school and i taught for two years in brussels wow and then i moved to zurich and i taught for um a bunch of years in zurich and started my company when i was overseas in switzerland 
And sometimes when things would inevitably go wrong, I would find a way to laugh at it and, and yeah. imagine myself writing a book about it in the future. You know, how can I, how can I be more like Anne Lamott about this? You know, how can I, how can I really, you yeah. know, you know, not, not, not deny the, the pain of the moment, but actually see the bigger picture that sometimes the, when things are imperfect, that's the most opportunity for freedom and mm. humor and, um, and the reminder that this is real life. And, you know, it's, it's happening in that moment. The fact that I can't control it means that I get to be living, you know? Yes. So, yes. so yeah. So I think that's part of why I've always felt humor is a really awesome tool and vehicle. I love it. I love it. I love it. It totally resonates with me. And I've, I've for sure said this before on the podcast, but I can't help but bring it up again. It's the thing I always tell my team is everything is wet clay. Like we're always just playing with wet clay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's moldable. It's flexible. It's dirty. It's messy. We got to work on it. We got to play with it. We got to move it. Like it's not precious. Yeah. Like everything is just wet clay and I can pass it to you. You're going to do something totally different with it. You're going to pass it back to me and I'm going to pick up where you left off or you're going to accidentally drop it on the ground and you're like, oh, well, you just pick it up and start moving it again. But you got to keep focusing on it. You don't want it to dry out because then you can't do anything with it anymore. You yeah. got to keep that time and attention with it. But it's like humor is such a big part of that. So I love your perspective oh, on that. Totally. I, I think I was talking with a neuroscientist once and they said in human evolution, that was a big moment for humans when I could point to something and you could recognize that my point meant that you had to look where I was pointing yes. because it was a sign of mutual care. Ah. Like you knew not, not that it was just a gesture, but that yeah. I was signaling to you. And then when you would look, yeah. Wow. I love that. That you're that's I don't know why that's mind blowing, but it totally is. <laughs> it's such a cool thing. For me too. I love that. Okay, I want to make sure we talk about something that you alluded to earlier, which is um maybe maybe potentially surprising for some people but you know you've you've confided in me in the past you don't have like a traditional MBA and yet you're doing all this amazing work as a teacher as an educator as a you know consultant working with all of these advising amazing huge corporations or government entities or organizations in the world your masters is in poetry yeah. and you've talked a little bit about poetry here and so i just want to kind of ask first like why poetry? Why why is this? And why do you why have you come to realize also in in studying this and practicing poetry that this is such an amazing advantage for you? Mm, thank you for bringing up poetry. Uh, I think when people don't have poetry, they miss it. And yet they're not always flocking to bookstores. It's not usually the first shelf poetry, you know, but <laughs> but we we always want it. And we want yes, it at big yes. moments. We need it at weddings. We need it, you know, when mm, things are so big true. rituals. Uh, poetry attracted me because it's a challenge uh, to distill down and to create images that are meaningful and stand for something. Mm. I also realized it was a chance to practice what you've talked about. Uh, mm. to not make something so precious mm -hmm. that it can't travel. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was learning from great poets, I found it a great mix of of the application and the philosophy. So you get mm -hmm. to to do all of this feels like, for me, the poetry was about the work 
more than the product yes. at the time. So the the product was secondary. And I, I really wanted to, I, I wanted to go back and study. And I, I'm someone who gets really deeply into the study and the ideas. And I liked, I liked the idea that there could be a secret code underneath things, kind of like me uh, being a programmer. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a code. And then sometimes knowing the code and the pattern, you get to break it. And yeah. when you break it and there's some kind of meaning underneath and then you start to feel like, oh, there are so many different layers. So rather than um, doing what sometimes we're taught to do, like beating the meaning out of a poem, as Billy mm -hmm. Collins talks about, um, you know, instead we're we're kind of inviting it to whisper to us and say in different periods of our life, well, how is how is this something that resonates? And so um, poetry is something where I could memorize it and carry it around in my proverbial pocket and and take it out and just realize that there are so many different uh, generations and cultures and and poetry is like a really rich, flavorful, uh, you know, it could be a stew. It could be something to digest <laughs> where you start to feel like, wow, I really, I really get what that's like to be in someone else's shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when I studied poetry, I particularly focused on somatic practices. Mm -hmm. I had a, a side study, um, it was an interdisciplinary program, so I could study art at the same time and um, do things that involved uh, nature and mm. um, some of the wellness practices. Uh, my thesis advisor is um, he's a medical doctor who was, you know, he's still at Harvard in the medical school, so he's teaching and a practicing doctor wow. and also a poet. And so uh, wow. Rafael Campo, you know, he was advising me on the poetry and we were also looking at how poetry, when we, when we speak it, it's something that's coming from a full body. And it's yes. also, you know, it doesn't replace modern medicine, but it can be really healing to have a practice that encompasses poetry, whether it's releasing emotion or telling a story to somebody else. Yeah. Let's hear a poem. <laughs> Absolutely. Kind of explore yeah. your world as a poet. I'm so curious. <laughs> I would love that, Justin. Thank you. We'll have a mini poetry reading. And and I think I think also, you know, to be that grand, right now there are a lot of questions about the future and society and mm -hmm. what matters. And I think back to the Greek times when I heard uh, any battle, they used to send a poet to a hill to be the lookout <sighs> because they wanted the poet to tell the story, to be able to tell the story and be able to frame it from a higher position. So sometimes I think poetry gives me that avenue to give some perspective, literally, or step back from things or under things or a different position where right now is there are so many fears and so much at stake um, you you can be there as a poet to witness it and also to hopefully take part in shaping a future. Mm. So, so on that note, I have a book that just came <laughs> out called Digital Satori, which I'm excited about. So this book is uh, really about um, about about the the exploration of what is the current state of technology and human. Mm and our relationships and so this this poetry book explores a lot of the the nature and the the emotions that are underneath our experiences and sometimes they're part of the coding um yeah so so what i'd like to do is read from this book 
And also as a warm up, I wanted to read because some of your podcast episodes talk about the nature of good. Yeah. Um, people who are working for the good of things and then yes. they're questioning, well, what does good mean in this age of AI? Uh, and when I was teaching, I had this exercise with students where I asked them, there was a morning announcement that was reminding people to be good. Mm. And this was in a high school. And I thought that was really interesting. It was It was a kind of, question of what it meant to be good. So this is a meditation on good. Mm. Meditations on good or thoughts following an instructive thought for the day. Good dog. Good morning, sunshine. Good grief. To be good. Don't disturb. I'm perturbed by the word. It's absurd. Goody, goody gumdrops. Good for me is wicked Wikipedia. Symmetry, ice, and everything nice. Sugar and spice and silence after heavy rain. Thick clutch of a net when the basketball sinks. Good is go. Red is stop. Fast or slow. Good. Someone once told me to be good. And I thought, no, fall down. It's okay if they frown. But I didn't dare act on it. Because I wanted the goods that good people get. Oh, regret. Good morning. Good day. Good night, moon. The next piece is called Whales. So this is from the new book, Digital Satori. And uh, I've been studying whale communication, whale behavior. And I was lucky enough to go with a bunch of researchers and be with whales this past year. Whales. The swell of the sea, yet the water is calm and the sky clear. A few dappled clouds play in the winter breeze. One festive jet spurting up is all I hoped for. And here we see 11 spouts all at once, dancing on the line of the dark horizon. Gray whales call here and they sound extreme, fantastic, almost exuberant. I imagine they can feel a thing we call happiness. I do not know how they interpret it, yet I sense their giant lift of joy. We arrive beside them as they are already dancing with each other. Oh, this is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> whales are amazing. And you, you have to kind of wait for a whale. If you're observing it, you don't, you don't want to follow it. You kind of just want it to show up. And a lot of what we're learning about whales um, is informing right now how we approach the environment, you know, their yeah. patterns, their communication, different species. It's pretty, pretty exciting to think about how much knowledge a whale has and whether it communicates in a, in a different way than we might expect and what we can learn from that. Yeah. Um, so the last piece I'll read today, uh, I have a practice where each year around uh, the turn of the year, I write a piece about the solstice. So the winter time is really special for me. I grew up in the northern hemisphere mostly, and so that that coldness and that darkness uh, gives us a reflective pause and usually a chance to to turn inside or to to really think about rituals and and um, a mix of shadow and light. So this is solstice. The moon is always female. She waxes and wanes, watching over me. Darkness and light, ebb and flow, the way the tide laps at your ankles. You feel its gentle pull, 
pulse at the skin of your temple. Solstice. Sun stands still, beyond stillness. Still here, still water, run deep, still true, all new. 2023 beckons, but I just can't leave you behind. The veil was lifted, imagery delivered from on high from a webbed telescope. Chat GPT indeed, the chatter and noise. The day everyone speaks and no one listens anymore, evermore, nevermore. Sand away the rough edges. Teach me to be human. Teach me to listen, animal. I love you, deep stars and deep trees. I dwell here. Teach us to slow down and listen. We are all connected. The light shining, glowing from within. Playing on our eyelids, dancing among us and through us. Solstice, here. I think, goodness, it's the perfect response to a conversation like this as well. Because full circle, what we've been talking about today is connection and healing and humanity (laughs) and all of that at its true core. And You know, and maybe we started with me, the skeptic, saying, hey, how does technology play a role in helping us be human? But ultimately, at the end of the day, like, I don't even know if that's the question we're ultimately trying to ask or answer, because we're just using what we have at our disposal to connect with one another, connect with the world around us. And through all of that, whether it's technology involved, whether it's a boat and a bunch of whales, (laughs) whether it's staring up at the moon, whether it's humor, whether it's throwing yourself into a whole nother country like you've done so many times in your life, it's just all leading us back to one thing. And that's just us as humans, us as human beings. Yep. And if, if we trust ourselves and we trust each other, then then it's my theory, the, the more connected we are, then the, mm-hmm. the more we live into that emergent future. Mm. Yeah. So so it's part part of this through line is to to share that journey and, and to continue to be playful and imaginative and, and let out whatever wants to be let out in the process. Yeah. So th- thank you for just inviting our conversation to go spatial and not totally. linear, you know? Everywhere. It, well, thank yeah. you. Thank you for being on this journey. This is so fun. And I am just so crazy excited to see what you're going to do next. This is just so much fun. An open invitation. Come into VR sometime because yeah. imagine the poetry reading taking place there. And then we get to build the environment we want to have it in. Have some interaction and you know I, I think that's the, the whole form fits function. So yeah, um, I'm really grateful for this conversation and just just for all that it sparks. Same. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thanks, Justin. <sighs> this episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.